0: What's up, everybody? This is Emmett. I'm here with John. Welcome to your free weekly episode of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing feels possible. If you'd like to get access to our bi-weekly Patreon episodes, you can, of course, subscribe to our Patreon. It's $7 a month. We'd be happy to see you there. And thank you to everybody who's subscribed, and thank you to everybody who has reviewed and rated and shared our podcast. We're really grateful for that. Today, we've got an extension of the Lash Files. I can't remember how I found this. It was on the on the Twitters somewhere. But Joel Whitney, the author of Finks, his book about how the Paris Review was basically a CIA op, which was great for me to find out because I hate the Paris Review <laughs> um, <laughs> and the majority of the New York literary establishment found an introduction Christopher Lash wrote to what looks like to be a collection of essays by historians about the cultural Cold War. Christopher Lash's aim in the piece is to take a look at the American Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was basically a CIA front (laughs) um, that a bunch of the leading lights of American thought liberal and conservative ended up participating in and I read it. And of course, lash was fire, but it brought up a bunch of things that John and I are going to continue to take a look at some in our Korea series, which will be coming up for you this summer, some in probably various other episodes we will do. I loved it. And so we're going to walk through it and then we're going to sort of drill down into what it contains.
1: He starts out the piece, I think, it's already pretty awesome from like the first sentence because he Mm -hmm. just immediately is saying that like really still in whatever time exactly he wrote this in um, a lot of like organs of thought, like academic and historical social thinking are still operating in this kind of way Mm -hmm. where they're presupposing like a truly illusory separation between themselves and their cultural context, like that they're just able to kind of like, operate ideally and comment on things as if they're not getting produced in the same way that the things they're researching were being produced by their social conditions, among mm-hmm. other things. And I, you know, he's, that's kind of one of Lash's things. It's like, let's actually do real criticality and yes. not this fake nonsense where we pretend that we're like apart
0: from the stream of things. Just some important things. This comes from 1968. If I remember correctly from Jeff Schollenberger's great piece at uh, Intellectual Memo 1776 on how Christopher Lash moved from being a leftist to being a conservative, he's still somewhat in his leftist modality at this point and hasn't yet splintered off. And you can kind of feel that as you go through, I thought. He seems a little bit younger here. I mean, he's as cantankerous as ever. But there was something about his just complete ruthlessness, especially with people like Galbraith, that spoke to a younger man <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> behind the typewriter. So, okay, look, we need to start with some situations and explaining a few things before we get into this. So, the culture, of, uh, the Congress of Cultural Freedom basically comes out of the experience of the second world war It's the beginning of the cold war. Right. And this is what, what I would call the first end of ideology. Right. So it's interesting that we have two different ends of ideology. The first one is at the beginning of the cold war. This is forwarded by people at the Congress for cultural freedom, uh, which is an international body that's there to safeguard intellectualism from the communist menace right uh and then it's like
1: nato of thinking
0: yeah (laughs) right for real yeah (laughs) and then you have the second end of ideology which is basically around when the cold war ends this was famously forwarded by francis fukuyama we live in the Fukuyamaist version i think we're all familiar if you're listening to this of things like the end of history there are no real major ideological struggles as there were in the cold war. And we're basically just doing technocratic management of liberal democracy and capitalism. Okay. What is the first end of ideology look like? Daniel bell and a few other people at the ACCF are forwarding this idea to create a unified front of anti-communism. This includes former communists. And the idea is that, domestically for all of these people, and in some sense internationally, there's no need to have any ideological squabbles, provided everyone can agree that communism must be defeated, right? Like that's it. That's how you frame it as like a civilizational struggle more than an ideological one. To me, that doesn't seem super serious. I think Lash would agree. Mm. But that's sort of what we're dealing with here. Now, the ACCF, over the course of its history, we find out from Lash, takes various amounts of money from the CIA indirectly through basically shell companies and shell organizations the CIA sets up specifically to funnel money to the ACCF. And a lot of that goes towards things like publishing one of its uh, magazines, which is called Encounter, which Mm -hmm. John Galbraith writes for. And just to, among others, and just to give you an idea of how diffuse this stuff was, like John Dos Passos was a member of the ACCF, right? Like there were a bunch of people who you might not otherwise think of as cold warriors that were invested in this project.
1: It's like a similarly to a lot of this kind of money ended up with people like Jackson Pollock or like abstract artists of the time, Mm -hmm. which is often brought up as like abstract art was an op, which I don't, I don't know enough about it to say that that's true, but I think it's more interesting just to say that broadly the CIA was interested in funding anything that they saw could operate culturally as like an anti-communist something like Mm -hmm. Jackson Pollock doesn't need to be an agent. He just needs to make stuff that's like in some ways seemingly contrary to like socialist realist art, you know, like that's all that's really required of him is to present something culturally capitalist and whether or not that's a fair reading of that kind of art. This was how they were operating. Um, Mm -hmm. Their money went all over the place to all kinds of things. And it only became clear much later the extent to which it was happening.
0: Right. So the other thing to consider here is that there have been many iterations of what the OSS and then the CIA end up becoming. We're sort of in the post-War on Terror version of that. I think that there are sort of eras of the CIA within the Cold War itself. The era that we're in, the high Cold War of the 1950s, is when I found out from Joel Whitney's interview on warner radio or radio warner whatever it's called uh with mark ames and john dolan is that there were a lot of guys from the cia who were interested in this fight that were all from humanities departments yeah that's an important thing to realize right we often think of humanities departments as as this vanguard of uh, sort of new left thinking or whatever. I mean, that starts to happen a little bit later, but I mean, even that stuff was like pretty reactionary. To re- you ever read- see
1: the Good Shepherd? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the beginning of that movie. It's very like that Oxbridgean sort of feel in the mm-hmm. U.S. of like these are the guys, like they're just finding poetry scholars or whoever the fuck to come, mm-hmm. like operate this new organization. It's very much like the, the elite society, which were still to be found in humanities departments in those days.
0: Right, exactly. And I also think that if we're wondering like, how culture becomes so politicized, this might be part of the germ mm. of that that we're living through now. And as we'll get into sort of the ways in which there is an official anti-communism and an unofficial anti-communism and how that all plays out with the establishment is an essential part to understanding how culture in America ends up being this political tool that has consequences outside of its domain. Right? So one of the examples that is gonna be brought that Lash brings up is going to be what happens with now for most people, an obscure figure in the high tide of McCarthyism in the 1950s. In the 1950s, the Cold War is shaped different than it is in the 80s. European detente doesn't set in until the mid 1950s. Europe is still emerging out of World War II. Everybody still has the memories of invasion and things like that. And they are worried that there is going to be this communist creep. Everybody seems to kind of be playing pretend and ignoring the fact that the Soviet Union's industrial base is basically gone and needs to be reworked and that they lost 30 million people to win the Eastern Front. Regardless, the fear is there. The US is interested in fomenting that fear, containing communism, and everybody's worried about Europe, right? Now, if we go eastward, we also have China to deal with. What are we going to do with China? We have, um, what's his name, uh, Kai, Check, um, yeah, it, in China, who's now having to contend with Mao, and we also have the Korea situation. So it does feel like a global conflict. Whether it actually is is something up for the debate, and is being debated at the highest levels by guys like Cannon and Dean Atcheson. right? So enter Joe McCarthy. Some fucking slob <laughs> uh you know a lot of these establishment people see him as, and in many ways he was this like just total populist slime ball, I guess
1: I always see it as like it's the ecclesiastical courts versus the like chad Protestant witch hunter,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I believe that um, McCarthy's, I think he's from Wisconsin and his district is largely German-American who's been there for a while, so probably Lutheran and um, fiercely Catholic. So anti-communist to the core, but also resentful of the Anglophone world in the way that we don't really remember Catholics as being. So they're hostile to people like, Dean Acheson with his fake British accent. They're hostile to all of these Harvard people who tend to run everything, all these Yaleys who come from Protestant backgrounds, right? Catholicism is still really under threat, under threat, quote unquote, is not respected in America. There's a dual loyalty argument there. That's why the election of John F. Kennedy is such a huge fucking deal. But that hasn't happened yet. So he steps into the ring and famously, he's like, I've got a list of conspirators or whatever. And this creates a largely farcical witch hunt within the House of Un-American Activities Committee. I mean, at some point, these guys were trying to come after Shirley Temple. I mean, it was like so embarrassing and stupid, really the worst of all of this stuff. But there happens to be a guy named Whitaker Chambers who was a communist when he was an undergrad and has now become something of a man of letters. Whitaker Chambers at some point is friends with, takes documents from... The extent to which this is all true, I'm not really sure. It seems like many things are debated. The Soviets claim that Alger Hiss, a Harvard man who worked for Dulles and clerked at the Supreme Court and is a founding member of the UN or whatever, who's tall, lean, handsome, and of course, a Harvard man, is a communist conspirator. This guy's held on to these documents for a while, and they make it to HUAC. Now, what happens? Well, Hiss's friends are like, don't go in there. Just let it all blow over. It's all gonna go away. This McCarthyite shit is not gonna last. But Hiss is arrogant, unsurprisingly. And he big dicks his way into Huac and publicly Aaron Sorkins them uh, <laughs> to the fanfare of the media and the establishment. And Even President Truman is like, yeah, this is over. This is a red herring, he says. It's all over. But there's one person who's not convinced, and it is a young Richard Milhouse Nixon who is within his first three years of being a senator. Now, Nixon is on the take from J. Edgar Hoover and a couple other people for Info. And he says that he notices that Alger Hiss never really says that he doesn't and has never known Whitaker Chambers. He says something like, I've never known a man by that name. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see how that plays out. Whether Nixon noticed that himself or whether he was told and slipped some documents that may or may not have been real, he acts on that. And what he does is he sits Whitaker Chambers down and he says, tell me literally everything you know about Alger Hiss. I'm going to get this motherfucker because his is everything that Nixon hates. It is the Protestant, the wasp establishment, which we're going to have a two piece on later that has locked him out and made him feel humiliated his whole life. It's not just like psychosocial for him, but that plays a large role in it. So he spends like nine days verifying everything that Whitaker Chambers has said. And he's like, bring that motherfucker back in here. (laughs) And in one private session and then one nine hour public session, he basically cripples Alger Hiss, deflates him, breaks his spine, you know, in front of everybody uh, on live radio and Hiss ends up doing time. So the establishment is not happy. And everybody's just like, no, 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 like, this isn't true. This is crazy because all of these people who become part of the establishment now realize that the unofficial anti-communism can come for them as well. Now it's a witch hunt. Now it's a problem. When you have these unwashed, you know, pieces of shit like Nixon and McCarthy coming in there and like wrecking shop, right? You can't have that. That's not organized. That's conspiratorial thinking. That's true. But it's interesting who's saying that and why they don't want anybody to do this. Now, people who are part of the ACCF lash points out are very hip to this and publish series of articles being like, no, 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 like, not like this. This is the wrong way. Some guys are a little bit more reticent, but you can already start to feel this triangulation game that happens. If you take a look at Bruce Cummings, the Korean War, he talks about how liberals start to become so scared in the McCarthy era of sounding anything like a socialist because it would ruin your career, that they basically become right-wingers. To the extent that once McCarthy era is over, they are lapdogs for the establishment. The rigor of the intellectual base of the country is shattered in this moment. And it's co-opted here. And that has real world consequences. Now I'm going to wrap this up and we're going to get into more of what Lash is looking at here, but McCarthy has his sights on people like Dean Acheson because Dean Acheson and Nixon has his sights on him as well. Dean Acheson publicly refuses to turn his back on Altra Hiss, but you have to remember, right? That the korea situation is going on that the china situation is going on one of the big republican things in a moment where they don't really have any leadership is to beat democrats with who lost china who's losing korea are you telling me that dean atchison and kenan are thinking that they're just gonna let this play out however it plays out with these communists Are they not a covert element of the Burrow that's letting communism spread border to border throughout the world? Who are these people that have taken over America? You have communism abroad and New Dealism at home, rotting the interior of the country. Can America not do better, right? That's sort of the tenor of what's happening here. Or if you're Joe McCarthy, I have a sock full of shit and I know how to use it, he told one reporter. (laughs) so this basically encourages us to get more militarily aggressive in South Korea and stuff like that as a way to diffuse the situation at home well this isn't going to stand and so a bunch of these guys are going to have to come in and kneecap McCarthy and create a much more presentable, establishment-friendly anti-communism.
1: Yeah, I I'm wondering if our listeners are beginning to see, as they say, as in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's true. <laughs> like anything that you thought was new and bad is not new. Yeah, <laughs> at the very least, and it's it's super fascinating to see that the political fault lines that you thought were kind of new are actually kind of old. Like there's, there's repetition going on here, as you might say, in a lot of way, difference in repetition, you could say is taking place <laughs> in America across the 20th century, you know, to the extent to which you have people who are like outsiders, but they're not that outside. Like they're not as outside as I am, but they're outsiders And there's people who are definitely insiders and you begin to see emerging like, oh, you know, I thought I thought America was like Democrats and Republicans. But honestly, in reality, the truth is, is you have a huge liberal establishment and then an occasional upsurge of like really bizarre, ugly conservative people who are kind of doing the same thing, but in a different way with a different tenor and taking advantage of the easy hits you can score against these sort of like feckless elite figures with the public to win elections.
0: Yeah. Who are repulsive in their own way. Yeah,
1: no, no, totally. So that's really the status quo and it's just still playing out today in many ways. Um, like you have Reagan and stuff and that's kind of its own thing, but like, it's very easy to see how it's, you know, it's not exactly like just two parties trading positions, but there's, there's a lot more going on like culturally, socially, politically, And, you know, the development of, we'll say it's like American discourse becomes all about posture and tone Mm -hmm. um, with the ascendance of official anti-communism, what we're going to look at.
0: Right. And some of the material conditions of that, basically the money, Lash is going to contrast with how it is at the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, Lash points out, is that, well, they don't have a lot of money. And the state runs a lot of things. So the intellectuals aren't necessarily free to explore things or whatever. They're within the ambit of the state. And that creates its own problems of repression. They are intellectually unfree. However, in the U.S., the elites, the intellectual establishment is so flush with money that money is so unaccountable. And through things like the ACCF, these people become so entrenched in the cause of the United States government that they self censor, that they become some witting, some not so witting patsies for the CIA who doesn't really care about them is obviously playing a cynical game is happy to let some of them hang out to dry whenever it benefits them. Cause you can always find someone else who wants that byline and that wants the money and that wants the prestige or whatever. So what he's really arguing here is that there is sort of an illusory type of intellectual freedom in the United States and that the cultural cold war basically solidifies that framework In America
1: yeah he it's feels like an argument that makes sense to me that like the Soviet Union's a developing country still especially after World War II where they're having to in some instances redevelop Mm -hmm. Um, you bureaucracies in the Soviet Union are not money spending agencies they are penny pinching like they have to justify every expenditure because resources aren't huge and so you're never going to fund pure scientific research. You're always only going to be funding applied science with some direct and obvious application to something that's necessary to the survival of Mm -hmm. socialism in one state or whatever, like that that's the game. And so you're under the direct control of those bureaucrats who, you know, are at times uncreative and (laughs) ruthless, ruthless and cruel. Um, However, As is saying like it can't operate that way in the us and what's more it doesn't need to operate that way in the us and what's even more it's actually better to do it another way if you can because it's so much more like sinister i think it's it's exactly the this is like the prototype of psychopolitics in the like byong chul han sense in many ways this is totally auto domination, like you're, you know, you're like a guy who believes things, maybe in undergrad. And, you know, you're wondering what you're going to make out of your life. And there's this clear pipeline to like being published and read and respected. And you'll have colleagues and you'll get money, you'll be able to live well as somebody who just thinks all day, which is kind of astounding. And all of these things are available to you. If you integrate into this thing and don't worry, it's totally like, this is free. This is the Congress for cultural freedom. So it's free because it's in the name and we couldn't lie to you. Yeah. (laughs) We wouldn't
0: lie to you. Like this is
1: the whole point of the thing is that it's totally free. And so you go and involve yourself in like some publication or whatever. Maybe you go to these Congress meetings Mm -hmm. and the, I think the people it's probably easy to understand this, I don't know, not that you need to, but like if you have a little bit of Freud, but again, you don't need to, and I'm not saying like, I'm not Freudian or anything, but there's just an extent to which we're capable of sort of incredible amounts of self-deception when it's necessary for our continued comfortability and survival Mm -hmm. that you really only under overcome that in really specific circumstances or with a lot of help and outside pressure and so having maybe not been directly in that position, it might be hard to see how this operates even better than like pure total oppression and thought control. But if this is the way for you to continue having your money, job and life, not only will you cynically keep doing it, which some people might like, oh, I'll play mm-hmm. along because I know
0: people sincerely keep doing it. <laughs>
1: no, it's even better if you believe it, because then yeah. it doesn't torture you every single I'll you, like you're just like oh you know like this is just good like i'm right. just doing something good and i'm being rewarded for that and isn't that also good
0: isn't that also good aren't i also a good guy the probably most embarrassing case is john galbraith encounter yeah. is one of the flagship magazines as we said it's on the take from the cia via these things some reporter digs this up you know it's embarrassing and Galbraith is just like, well, at the time I didn't know, but he gets fussy with the timeline and it's very clear he's lying and that he did in fact know that he was a CIA patsy despite all of his claims to the contrary. Cause the other thing is just like, obviously the ACCF isn't really interested in intellectual freedom. It's interested in certain arguments about intellectual freedom that are convenient for the U S government's fight with the Soviet union It is not interested in intellectual freedom in South Korea or South Vietnam or anything else that (laughs) happens where the U.S. puts up right wing dictators or violates the sovereignty of other countries. However, it is very worried. This is the 50s, mind you, of Soviet racism (laughs) and Soviet neocolonialism. Which...
1: Yeah, to us, it's like, well, that's just amazing. <laughs> like-
0: <laughs> right, which is sort of incredible. And the other thing is, this is important to consider. The Soviet establishment, they were not fools. They knew that they were a poor country. They understood how destroyed they were after two world wars and a civil war, basically, the revolution. And they realized that they were in a difficult spot, right? Socialism in one state, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. they have to play the international game. How's that going to look for them? They don't have resources like the U S does to just fund fucking whoever send them guns or troops (laughs) or things like that. They can't do that, right? That's not uh, what they're doing, but they also have people that are interested in aligning with them that are also communists. So what are they going to do? Well, they generally argue for some sort of appeasement with the West because they can't get drawn into a protracted conflict and everyone's terrified of nuclear war. The establishment of the Soviet Union is, in a foreign policy way, insanely conservative, right? They aren't playing the same game that Washington is playing. They're skeptical of what they can do in Korea. They don't know. Stalin kind of doesn't want to be bothered.
1: There's something you can actually see in a lot of old Noam Chomsky stuff when he's going over the Cold War is he's pretty clearly lays out that, like, while the narrative was the sort of insane, dangerous Russians with the button the reality was the Russians never really came anywhere as close as we often did to causing like a global war. Like they were far, far less comfortable with the idea of engaging with us. Whereas while we possessed a mixed bag of characters, many of those characters were like just extreme psychos who were ready for it. Um, famously Herman Kahn, but you know, air force generals, etc. Like mm-hmm. there is an idea of, That was like, it was an equal sort of competition of two people with the same aims and the same Mm -hmm. resources. Uh, It's not really true.
0: Yeah. It's not true at all. And the important thing is, is that after stuff like McCarthy, when you look at some of these, the early iterations of the like NGO sphere, when you look at Rand and things like that, a lot of these guys leave like, Herman Kahn's family ends up getting wrapped up in the McCarthy 8 shit and he hates it. He's incredibly resentful of it. And there are lots of other people at organizations like this that are incredibly sharp and smart. I'm not saying they're good or that they would have done any better, but certainly uh, there is a quality of thought that disappears from these organizations because these people are like, fuck this, I don't want the money, I can't deal with the ulcers and the headaches.
1: Yeah. Well, they end up starting their own think tanks in some cases, but it yeah. disseminates this expertise it's no
0: longer is organized. And yeah. of course, when you have all of these interests at the same trough, things get confusing. And then when you have the United States party system, which is only two parties, it basically serves to obscure more than clarify mm. the political fights, domestic and otherwise going on in the United States. Right. That's what's so frustrating about partisanship in America is that it is both the only game in town and absolutely stupid on its face if you sit with the issues for more than 30 minutes.
1: You want to hop into the piece a little bit? Yeah, 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 There's a really interesting section where he talks about the, the ACCF, like we were saying. So they're pinned by McCarthyism for a little bit in the sense that the people who are um, writing at the publications that are associated with the ACCF find themselves to the left of McCarthy in an interesting way and needing to position themselves far to the right of socialism. And so the way that they do that is you get the formulation of what will end up being called uh, by Christopher Lash, like official anti-communism. It's it's, it's socially acceptable anti-communism, which McCarthyism definitely is not. And he goes into that in a few different episodes. Um, one which is really interesting. So, the ACCF tried to plant with the New York World Telegram and Sun a story already circulated by the new leader that a certain liberal journalist was a Soviet espionage agent. Sol Stein called the city desk with what he described as a junior Alger Hiss story. <laughs> the reporter who took the call asked whether the proper place to determine the truth of these charges was not a court of law. Stein replied, in this reporter's words, that libel suits were a communist trick to destroy opposition by forcing it to bear the expense of trial. The reporter then asked whether the ACCF was upholding the right of people to call anyone a communist without being subject to libel suits. Stein said, You misunderstand the context of the times. Many reckless charges are being made today. But When the charges are documented, the committee believes you have the right to say someone is following the communist line without being brought to court. The reporter asked if Stein had any proof that the journalist in question was a Soviet spy. Stein said no, but we have mountains of material that show he consistently follows the Soviet line. When they took positions of which the ACCF disapproved, the ritualistic liberals, uh, as Lash calls them, were communist tools. When they took positions critical of the Soviet Union, the ACCF denied their right to take them. Arthur Miller in 1956 wrote a statement condemning political interference with art in the Soviet Union. The ACCF did not congratulate him. It asked why he had not taken the same position in 1949. The committee also noted.
0: <laughs> Man, it's always been Tumblr. It's always yeah. been Tumblr, dude.
1: <laughs> Where were you in 1949?
0: Yeah, dude. Oh, I'm bad so look
1: tired. Guy. I'm so tired of allies showing up like they've been here the whole time. The committee also noted that Miller, in any case, had made an unforgivable mistake. He had criticized political interference with art not only in the Soviet Union, but in the United States, thereby implying that the two cases were comparable. American incidents, the committee declared, were episodic violations of the tradition of political and cultural freedom in the United States, whereas the official government policy of the USSR was to impose a party line in all fields of art culture and science and enforcing such a line with sanctions ranging from imprisonment to exile to loss of job having dutifully wrapped miracles the accf then went on to use his statement by challenging the soviet government to circulate it in russia
0: <laughs> just so amazing so slimy so slimy so slimy
1: yeah, it's it's super like oh, and then the next paragraph. So there's a whole thing with Charlie Chaplin films where they're like Charlie Chaplin's kind of a Soviet sympathizer. Can we watch his movies? And the opinion of the ACCF is like, well, yes, because the movies aren't really pro-Soviet. It's just Chaplin. And then Lash points out that thus, if the movies had had any kind of pro-Soviet political content, they should have been banned. Was kind of the like implied yeah, stance right, of the ACCF exactly. there. So that I feel like that's just like it's quintessential or something of this stance of this cultural freedom stance. Like you know what I mean? It's the
0: the Wait, cynicism
1: we, is obvious.
0: Yeah, and we recognize it from our childhoods, right? Like that's the war on terror to me. Mm. Which makes sense, right? Because the the second Bush administration is basically a sleeper cell for the Ford administration. (laughs) Right. Like these were all the guys who were undestroyed by Watergate. Yeah. This is like
1: the Carter too.
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How are you going
1: to come back the second time around?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Damn dude. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's what happens there. And Joan Didion has a great essay on this, which is published in a small, slim volume that will one day be featured in a larger collection, probably put out by the uh, Library of America or some, some such thing called Fixed Ideas, uh, America After 9-11. And one of the things that she talks about is how so many people celebrate after 9-11, the death of irony. And no longer can we play these like facile games of criticality you know, like this is over, you know, she talks about like waking up and suddenly there's a yellow ribbon on every tree and like flags everywhere, you know, usually in the wealthy communities, Uh, (laughs) you know, uh, where she lives in New York and that what is and isn't political, what is and isn't art, what is and isn't acceptable culture are all determined within this framework of how it fits in to the U S imperial stance. You know, that's what's happening here. And that's what happens for decades in America.
1: Mm -hmm. And the kind of implicit agreement or not even like the ultimatum is like, that's the way it is, but you can believe whatever you like about it. (laughs) Like whatever you need to think that's fine with us here at the state department, the CIA, like,
0: (laughs) right. Why do you think that there's this big push in the Biden administration to wokeify the U S military? The conservatives are having a huge falling out with them right now over it, which is something that I never expected because I assume that relationship between conservatives and the military would always hold in the same way as it did my childhood and for decades before that. But now we're in a different element. Now, mind you, the conservatives might not necessarily be against us empire. They're against the, uh, cultural aesthetics of how the army is comporting itself. And certainly there are concerns of the US military weighing in personally on domestic, politic, cultural issues. Absolutely. But what is really happening is it's become clear that whatever these cultural signifiers, these identity politics things were going to be, can now operate successfully with the US establishment as it is. And in fact, could be part of the language as much of human rights became for how we prosecute these things abroad. And this is how the cultural Cold War has continued to exist today, much in the way that Lash is pointing out. I mean, just consider um, Samantha Power, who worked for Barack Obama and sort of helps Hillary Clinton with everything that goes on in like Yemen and stuff like that. She writes a book on massacres and genocides and manages not to bring up anything that we did in Latin America. Mm. El Salvador does not show up in her book. The Contras do not show up in her book. The level of violence that was experienced in those countries is truly surreal. South Korea does not show up in her book. And when we get into the Korea series, we will lay out in vivid detail, frankly, stomach turning detail. Yeah, How absolutely psychotic that is. And now she works for the Biden administration. But in between those administrations, she was operating in these like establishment adjacent NGO groups that operate just like the ACCF.
1: Yeah. The ACCF eventually, you know, becomes irrelevant becomes like the integrity is a little bit lost when it's just unavoidable. Mm -hmm. They were receiving the money that people can no longer trust in them. But at that point, like who needs the ACCF, you know, like Mm -hmm. the cold war is pretty much over whatever the, they were just a prototype for something that was already totally endemic by the time they disappeared. Like they were no longer necessary by the time they disappeared because Mm -hmm. it was already operating. And I think the truth is today, like, you don't even need to find the money trail because the money no longer even needs to happen in that way. Like Mm -hmm. that's just set up now. Like that's just the operating system for these things. Like that's just how you have to be. And it's like, in some ways it's the price for connection to these worlds. Yeah,
0: totally. Which is
1: not to say, I think, I won't say that anybody who's involved in the academy is compromising themselves in this way. But I will say that probably most people who are pretty successful and have a lot of prestige, there's a good chance that somewhere along the way, they have had to make certain changes to outlooks they had in order to be palatable to Mm
0: -hmm.
1: a... Like, frankly, like an ecosystem, like we're saying, like it's these universities, it's these NGOs, it's this entire social strata of, you know like the the American intellectual class and anyone who wants to be a part of it, um, you can only go so far, you can only say so much, and you're even you're allowed to have quite a lot of posturing um, to separate yourself from an establishment insofar so far as your identity is concerned, but that's only so that you can go along and then be a part of it, which right. is like that's the whole point like we're talking about the end of irony, which is hilarious because people were making same day jokes. About 9-11, mm-hmm. like literally as it was happening, people were making jokes. So, yeah, I mean, I was I was too young at the time to have known about that. But I later saw like forum threads.
0: Right, right. Day of, and it's so, like,
1: holy shit. Like, yeah. I, what the establishment
0: I mean, meant is really that it was willing to conform more strictly to whatever the United States government, the Defense Department and whoever was going to lay out as the talking points.
1: Yes, yes. And the the real truth of the death of irony well that was like a momentary necessity of the appearance of patriotism which was quickly forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um in you know the uh, the actual social operation of irony is that you can be somebody who's like, "Oh yeah, I don't believe in any of this stuff. It's like so bad and wrong and whatever, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. haha, I'm going to go do it." Haha. Like, but I don't believe in it, like so you know, it's like, right. I have the separation necessary for my identity to continue being what I think it should be while I'm just participating in what I supposedly don't agree with.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, while we're taking a look at this, you know, I've been within NGO world. I'll probably be there again. There are definitely things that like, <laughs> you can't say too loudly, like while you're within it, you know, that is a hundred percent true. And that is yet the idiom of American politics. So the problem that Christopher Lash is identifying here is that we have a real, I don't know what this word means anymore, structural, but we have like an endemic problem within our civil society. It is captured in a sort of middle-class idiom. What do I mean by that? The majority of Americans are poor and working class. You're going to see stats that tell you that that's not true. Those stats are usually juked, right? They'll expand the definition of middle-class so that nobody really starts to think about the fact that they're really disadvantaged in America, you know? Now, why do we have these things that seem to only cater to the interests of the middle-class college-educated people, left and right, in the press, and these obsessives and lock out the rest of the country. Well, part of it's the partisan problem I brought up before. We only have two parties, so there's not a lot there in terms of what you can do with like wiggle room or identifying yourself as an outsider. Okay, the other part of it is this entire network of NGO stuff is going to create, reinforce, and disseminate its values, its perspectives, and its concerns. So all policy, all debate is framed within this. And it is very hard to get honest outside perspectives that are going to challenge that. Why else do we think that the New York Times is putting on its front page that podcasts might need to be censored as hate speech zones? Why else? This is exactly the type of thing that lash is talking about here at the end. He really plays the hits and he brings up that a country that has top down bureaucratic oppressive enforcement of its ideology might be in less trouble than a country that allows for the illusion of rebellion.
1: Yeah. There's a good part in here where he mentions um, he kind of lays out the system that we're talking about. Like it becomes obvious at some point that intellectuals are valuable to the government and the government's going to be valuable to intellectuals and that there's going to be a decentralized sort of like seemingly emergent propaganda system um, that's going to form and take place in this country. And he says a system like this presupposes two things, a high degree of professional consciousness among intellectuals uh, and a general economic affluence. The first one is really interesting because I think that that, like you were saying, there comes to be this sense that the public intellectuals kind of do form maybe the kernel of a social class in America that now has a really distinct, you could say like position financially, socially in the country. Um, And thus they develop a common worldview and a common parlance and things like that, that are then going to be slowly exported, especially because I think initially, as you see, there was some, some attempt to say like, well, journalists aren't yet fully incorporated. Like they were still a little bit skeptical of times when they were attempted like in at times when these intellectuals attempted to press gang them in to the, to the core. Um, there was something of that maybe for a while, but that's solved at some point by our time. It's totally dissolved, I think. And they kind of constitute something more singular these days than at that time.
0: Yeah. We could see it as it used to be that um, journalism sometimes had an anti antagon- as a, the fourth estate would sometimes have an antagonistic relationship with the rest of the estates of the United States. Right. But it would also fall in line in broad ways because there were only so many news outlets. Now that we have a million news outlets and it's hard to basically disseminate the view in that way, how are you going to do it? Well, you're going to do it through different ways to create prestige and trust, right? That's going to be advocacy journalism And access journalism. In other words, supporting a pre-agreed on ideological cause that you're going to insist is really, really a problem. And in some cases it might actually be, you know, just because something is like within the ambit of like what's acceptable in America doesn't mean that it is totally a CIA op, right? Um, But then this was really bad in the Obama years, access journalism, where it's like you get to spend a week with the president, right? (laughs) And then then write this thing about how he's so cool. (laughs) Like, I think NPR (laughs) ran something like that. And I remember Glenn Greenwald being like, what? (laughs)
1: That's like Cribs. Yeah, right.
0: MTV Cribs (laughs) for Barack Obama. Yeah. You know, Um, and so that's, that's where we are now. So when we see these fears about what's a legitimate news source or whatever, I mean, there is disinfo out there. You know, there is like that stuff exists, but the fears from the establishment over like Substack or like whatever, like stuff that plays like such a fractional role yeah. in the huge trough of information that you can eat from <laughs> every day. Yeah. Most of it gruel mm-hmm. um, is because it threatens this legitimation effort. Now, there are people who like um, Jude Doyle or whoever uh, that aren't like patsies of the CIA or whatever. I mean, I doubt it. Uh, They're really just advocating for their professional self-interest when they're going after these people. And that's sort of what John, I think meant when he's talking about how like you can just sincerely believe these things when you pay your mortgage with it. And you don't really have to think too much about like first principles in a way. You're just identifying a bad guy that says cultural things that you don't like. And those just happen to be uh, antagonistic to your status within the media hierarchy, within the cultural hierarchy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is that not that many of us have the stomach to fully understand the truth and then just operate in self-interest anyways against what we know is true. Like most of us just need to alter our definition of the truth um, in order to do things like that. And it should never be taken as if I'm saying that as if I'm not doing that right now. (laughs) That's an important thing for everyone to know. Like it's pervasive and insidious and it's absolutely involved in every single one of our lives. And to some extent there's no other way. Like you can't, the conditions of your life are pretty unalterable by you in many ways. And you just have to accommodate yourself to them. Mm-hmm. So this is not a like, because I'm outside of it. I can just like see everything. And like, I can tell you like that these guys took the money, but I'm good. It's
0: right. And we're the, super, that, we're me the doing
1: that, Yeah me doing that is what I'm saying that they're doing. You know what I like? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And me yeah. saying, that I know that I'm not doing that is me also doing that. So like, there's no real way out. It's just sort of like, that's life, but no, it's important I, for us to understand that like, it operates this way to some extent.
0: Right. Exactly. Like all of us are going to have to do our own moral discernment and things like that. And lots of times we'll come up short. In fact, I think that that is sort of the primary interest of our investigations into after virtue Yeah. and things like that is that um, we would like to be as ruthlessly honest as we can be. And that means admitting that we can't necessarily be as ruthlessly honest as we would aspire to by dint of our own fallibility. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) If only though, but. (laughs) Oh yeah. If only though, man.
1: He kind of, so actually brings it home in the end, like you were saying. And uh, I think he he gives a nice a kind of summary of what he's trying to say here. when he says, in associating themselves with the war making and propaganda machinery of the state in the hope of influencing it, intellectuals deprive themselves of the real influence they could have as men who refuse to judge the validity of ideas by the requirements of national power or any other entrenched interest. Time after time in this century, it has been shown that the dream of influencing the war machine is a delusion. Instead, the war machine corrupts the intellectuals. The war machine cannot be influenced by the advice of well-meaning intellectuals in the inner councils of government. It can only be resisted. The way to resist it is simply to refuse to put oneself at its service. And he goes on to talk about how that does not involve doing any of the like current new left stuff, like shouting, doing acid, Um You know, poverty, tourism, whatever Mm -hmm. you might want to involve yourself in that you could do, um, because that is merely something which he says it's masking itself as a higher selflessness. But these acts are in truth, Mm self-serving, having as their object, not truth, nor even social change, but the promotion of the individual's self-esteem, which is a thread that he'll be following for the rest of his career. Moreover, they betray at a deeper level the same loss of faith, which drives others into the service of the men in power, a haunting suspicion that history belongs to men of action and that men of ideas are powerless in a world that has no use for philosophy. It is precisely this belief that has enabled the same men in one lifetime to serve both the Communist Party and the CIA in the delusion that they were helping to make history, only to find in both cases that all they had made was a lie, But these defeats, the revelation that the man of action, revolutionist or bureaucrat, scorns the philosopher whom he is able to use, have not led the philosopher to conclude that he should not allow himself to be used. They merely reinforce his self-contempt and make him the ready victim of a new political cause.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Damn. Um, Fuck, that's
1: so good. It really brought up for me, like, one of the consistent... um, and really interesting things in the chinese intellectual kind of tradition you'll see it in confucianism and then a lot in Taoism is the idea that a good man can't serve a bad government like there's a certain breaking point where like i think maybe it's in the Analects. like if if the dao holds sway in the country then it's shameful not to hold a government post but if the Tao does not hold sway in the country then it is shameful to hold a government post like yeah. you are not going to do anything by serving like an evil and wicked ruler like if you admonish him and he doesn't receive it well and change then like your business there is pretty much done like and anything else is compromising yourself and in those days it would often mean you would be executed at some point or another Mm -hmm. in one of the palace shakeups. and so i think this was it kind of became a cultural um thing that was available to people who were of the intellectual class who worked in government and this eventually got imported over even into japan where if some shift happened and like you no longer had a place at court or you no longer felt like you were in the same stream you retire to the mountainside and you like paint and write poems, and if anyone comes seeking your help, you act like an idiot and make sure that you seem about as useless as you possibly can, so that you can preserve your life and do something with what you have left of it. Mm-hmm. And
0: like Odysseus pretending to have gone mad,
1: yeah, they, totally. It's so the that same Agamemnon kind of thing. can't
0: convince him to go to war. Hmm.
1: I think. Um, I mean, there's something to all that, and I think that it's 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 meaningful that it's so old, like a a realization about the nature of like power and being involved with power versus, you know, and like, what does it mean to resist power and being even kind of humble about the possibilities for that? Because I think so many people today would say like, Oh, like resistance or hashtag resist or whatever. Like it's, you know, what we've done with the word is pretty interesting, but there's an idea that resistance is like, a change-making thing. Like by resisting, you're going to like find a a little fault, and you're just going to like punch it, and then the crack is going to grow, and then the whole thing shatters, or whatever. But I think that as I've gotten older, um, I don't I don't really believe in that anymore. Um, I think I think I'm a lot more Delusian these days, and for me, resistance is more like, you know, I'm trying to escape from something totalizing and find a way to like, exist in a way outside of that. And that's not to say that like, there's no point in like trying to help people or like change things that are bad. But I do think probably that some type of like, line of flight or exit or whatever, from the ways in which like these things basically just completely mentally colonize you, Like, if it's not necessary to help people, I don't think maybe it's necessary, but I think it's both desirable and extremely beneficial to you to be able to do something like that, which, you know, could honestly just mean in a lot of cases, like understanding that by taking somebody's money and doing something like what's that? what's that transaction really consist of? And is it worth it to you? You know, like, and what are you giving up? And it's not always easy to be honest. Like we were saying, it's Mm -hmm. often impossible to be totally honest, but you, one feels like they would like to do the best they can in that, because it's, you know, like some of the people who were involved in this realized like this was often their life's work. Um, Mm -hmm. Where he quotes uh, a guy, Michael Wood who says that, you know, his time working uh, at the NSA, which was, this, this does not mean the National Security <laughs> Agency, this is some other thing, um, one of these organizations. And he said, you know, it was a a time of unusual personal liberation. While actively involved in many of the insurgent campus and political movements of the day, we were also able to move freely through the highest echelons of established power. These experiences, Wood says, gave us a heady feeling and a sense of power beyond our years. But to learn that it had been bought with so terrible a compromise made me realize how impotent we really were. Um,
0: That's rare to get that level of self-honesty. Yeah. You know, I think one of the ways where John and I differ is I still perhaps, I had a friend like poking fun at me. For this, that I still haven't given up on the project of like modernity and like mass action, all sorts of <laughs> stuff like that. But I can definitely uh, sympathize with and, and relate to what he's saying. I think another thing to trace here, maybe we can sort of, we'll wrap up. But when we look at what happens to things like left politics in America and how those become a part of the establishment, or whatever, it's important to realize that by the time you get to the sixties. We've been through several Red Scares. We've talked about the chilling effect that that has. We're in the middle of a Cold War. We've talked about the effect that that has. And we have to remember that US labor, especially after the Ribbentrop Pact, where the Soviet Union temporarily allied with the Nazi Party, socialist politics had a difficult legitimation problem within America. That's just true, right? That was a huge stumbling block for American labor not to mention the fact that it was always under assault by the business class that had more material power as it always does, but way more social currency in America than like anywhere else. Really. We have always been a laissez-faire nation, you know, things like the Wagner act or whatever rollback union rights, like immediately after Roosevelt's out of office, (laughs) you know, Um, we talked with Calvin and son about the difference between Roosevelt talking about the right to a job and things like that. And then, truman a couple years later basically being like anyway the right to free enterprise you know um, and what that that shift looks like so what happens by the time we get to the 50s and 60s well the cio is fiercely patriotic and hostile the major labor organs are basically hostile to socialist politics now Uh, You have people who are college educated, who become radicalized, who are morally worried about what's going on. This is why Abby Hoffman, one of the Chicago seven says the new revolutionary doesn't go into the factory. He goes into the TV station and you start to see this lack of faith that Christopher Lash is talking about this idea of men of action in the very cynical reactionary search for the subject that is already radical, you don't need to convince black Americans. Some of these people are gonna say that there needs to be a revolution in this country. So they are now the revolutions as if all black people have the exact same stake in how things are going to play out, right? Or campesinos in Latin America or peasants in Maoist China or whoever, there are all of these different sort of invented fetish objects. For this class to essentialize and act as if they can just say, by my decree, this is the revolutionary subject of history. Mm. And I will enforce that through the media and all of these other organi- organs until it has become legitimate. And then the politics follow from there. Mm-hmm. We're downstream from that now. Those things have become sort of um, accepted assumptions. Of mainstream political thinking and lended itself well to sort of the Moynihan, Oscar Handlin ideas of discrete ethnic and racial groups that made the melting pot of America, um, right? And that led to the sort of group interest politics that basically eliminate the idea of a public itself that we were discussing with young son. This is why when we look at politics, cultural and otherwise in America, nothing feels possible.
1: (laughs) And there you have it. And
0: there you have it. (laughs) So tune in next week. We are going to be talking to Meredith Angwin about the grid in greater detail. It'll be a fun time. That'll be our, our, official sequel to our episode with Mark Nelson on the Texas grid. And we hope to see you there. So stay safe out there.